Lord, as we go through your word this morning, I pray that you would show us great and mighty things in your word, Lord. That as we go through your word, we would discover just how great you truly are, how amazing you are. The wisdom, the knowledge, the understanding is far beyond anything that we could think or imagine, Lord. And so isn't that the right place to go, to seek wisdom in our time of need? To go to you, Lord. Not worldly sources, not books, not Google, not anything else, Lord, but you. You are the source of all knowledge. And Lord, I pray that as we dig into your word this morning, that would become very clear and evident to us. Go before us here today. We pray in Jesus' name that you would just be with our brother Roger. Strengthen him, Lord, as this is a very hard time of year for him to breathe. We pray for Matt, Lord, you continue to strengthen him, bring him through this. And Lord, we just pray for all here who are sick and hurting, all those who are struggling. Lord, we just pray that you show yourself mighty in their lives. So go before us here this morning, Lord, as we unpack your word. Speak to us each on an individual basis, and we ask it in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So we are in Job chapter 27. If you need a Bible, just slip up your hand. Job chapter 27. In this chapter, Job uses the words God or Almighty 11 times. And it's a contrast between um, Job's friends and Job. In their, all of their discourses, all of their discourses, they never address uh, God not once, not once in a personal way. We don't see them praying to God, yet Job, we see calling out to God. We see speaking to God. We see praying to God because Job, unlike his friends, have a, has a personal relationship with God. And that's the main reason, I believe, why Job is able to persevere through this trial that would really break the back of most of us. Now, Job may not understand why God has allowed him to go through this, but he knows that God will see him through this. And there's a huge difference there, isn't there? There's a comfort there. There's a peace there. Knowing that we're going through something, and we may not understand why God's allowed it to happen, but we understand that he's going through it with us, that he's there with us in the midst of it. So our, in our text this morning, Job asked the question, where do you find wisdom? We seek wisdom in so many different places today, don't we? We have so many different options, so many different roads available to us to seek wisdom. There's Google. That's the first place we go, isn't it? If you're sick, it's WebMD. If you want to know something, it's Google. It's Google for everything, pretty much. Books are kind of a thing of the past. Remember, um, what were those? Oh, Encyclopedia Britannica. Remember those? Oh, my goodness. We go to college for wisdom. We seek wisdom. We seek advice from others, right? And even reality shows. I know, right? But some people think they're real. But real wisdom. The wisdom that we need to get through the day, the wisdom that we need to get through a trial is found in our Lord. That's the real wisdom. It's found in our Creator. 
James writes, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives it all liberally without reproach, and it will be given to him. James chapter 1, verse 5. And I love that he says, if any of you lacks wisdom. How many times have we been going through something, and we just cried out, Lord, I don't know what to do. I'm lost here. I don't know how to handle this. James says, if we go to the Lord in any situation and ask for wisdom how to handle this, how to get through it, how to persevere, God will give us the wisdom to know what we need to know, to do what we need to do. But then the Holy Spirit says something else through his servant James. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like the wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, for he is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. So when we ask for wisdom, we have to trust in God for the answer. How many times do we ask God for wisdom? How many times do we ask God to help us, and then we turn around and take it right back out of his hand? We have to trust God for the answer, not in not doubt his wisdom, not doubt his counsel, but trust him fully for his guidance and his leadership. And he'll give us the wisdom to endure through a trial. He'll give us the wisdom to endure through the day. You know, when asked if we need the Holy Spirit to go to heaven, someone responded, honey, we need the Holy Spirit to go to Walmart. <laughs> if you've ever been to Walmart lately, you know that's true. But he gives us the wisdom to walk through our day, doesn't he? Why isn't it that we seek him first thing in the morning for that wisdom? Why is it we seek him when we're in the midst of something and realize, you know, Lord, I went out of the house naked today. I went out of the house without you. I went out of the house in my own strength. The other topic Job touches on this morning is judgment. And anytime we come across the teaching on judgment, we have to ask ourselves as Christians, can we judge one another? Are we to judge one another? And I think the answer this morning is going to surprise you. So let's dig into Job. No, we haven't even gotten in the book yet. So let's dig into Job, chapter 27, verses 1 through 6. Moreover, Job continued his discourse and said, As God lives, who has taken away my justice, and the Almighty who has made my soul bitter, as long as my breath is in me, and the breath of God in my nostrils, my lips will not speak wickedness, nor my tongue utter deceit. Far be it from me that I should say you are right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. My righteousness I hold fast, and I will not let go. My heart shall not reproach me for as long as I live. So Job's making an oath. He cries out, I vow, I vow to the living God. There is a number of oaths made in the Bible. Most of those oaths you find in the Old Testament. One of the most famous ones is made by Jephthah. You, are you guys familiar with that one? Jephthah made a, made a rash vow to the Lord. He was about to go into to battle, and he needed the Lord's help. So he said to the Lord that if you give me victory in this battle, I will offer up as a burnt offering the first thing that comes out of my home to greet me. So when the Lord granted him that victory, and Japheth, Japheth goes home, the first thing or person that came out of the house to greet him was his daughter. Now, I don't know who he expected to come out first, the goat, his wife, I don't know. But whoever that was, Japheth remembered his vow, meaning he had to offer up his daughter 
as a burnt sacrifice. Now, whether or not he actually went through with that vow is a topic for another discussion, but he made a foolish vow, no? We'd all agree on that. It'd be like us saying, you know, we're facing an impossible situation, and we say, Lord, if you get me through this, somehow, some way, I will serve you for the rest of my life. And then the Lord works nothing short of a miracle in your life, and you're like, wait a minute, Lord, did I say the rest of my life? Wise advice. Make a vow. Don't make a vow you cannot keep. Don't make a vow you cannot keep. Jesus tells us what he thinks about us making vows. You've heard that it was said that people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes, and your no be no. Anything beyond that comes from the evil one. Now, please understand that Jesus is not speaking out against us, entering into any contracts or proposals or any form of agreements. If that were the case, we'd never be able to buy a home. You wouldn't be able to sign a contract to buy a car. We wouldn't even be able to get married because that's a vow, right? That's the vow of marriage. So vows or, or, or oaths that Jesus is speaking of is when a person says, I cross my heart and hope to die, right? Or I swear on a stack of Bibles I did not do that, right? Or I swear on my mother's life. How many of us have said that? So these are the types of vows that Jesus warns against. And as Christians, we have to be very careful about making vows, either to the Lord or one another. When dealing with each other, unless it involves a binding contract, a legally binding contract, and it's okay for Christians to enter into legally binding contracts with one another. But unless it's that, we have to let our yes be yes and our no be no. So Job swears before the Lord. He swears that he's innocent. He's staking his life on the fact that he's innocent. Job says, as long as I breathe, Lord, as long as I have breath in my lungs, I am going to continue to declare my innocence. And so by making this oath, he's saying that he's willing to place his life on the line. That if he's lying, that the Lord should take his life. Is really what he's, he means by all this. He's making an oath. He's swearing on his own life that if he's lying, the Lord should strike him dead. You know, it'd be like saying to someone, I swear to you I'm telling the truth. And they say, yeah? Well, prove it to me. You can't tell anybody the truth in New Jersey because they'll always say, prove it to me. Job's offering his life as proof that he's telling the truth. And so despite all of that, he says, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to lie to appease my friends. I'm not going to bargain with God to restore everything that I've lost. I'm just going to stand firm on my righteousness and my innocence. That's not very stable ground, is it? To stand firm on your righteousness, on your innocence. We're standing on shaky ground when we make an oath based on that, aren't we? I know I can't stand on my own righteousness. Because my righteousness, our righteousness, the Bible tells us is what? Filthy rags. There are none righteous, not one. Not in our own strength, not us personally, we're not. But I can stand, you can stand on the righteousness of Jesus Christ, without a doubt. Solomon wrote, when the storm has swept by, 
The wicked are gone, but the righteous stand firm forever. He went on to write, Man cannot be made secure by wickedness, but the root of righteousness is immovable. So you and I, no matter what life throws at us, no matter what we go through, can stand firm in the knowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord and that through his death and resurrection, through his blood, we're covered by his righteousness, making us perfect in the eyes of our Father. And that nothing, nothing can separate us from that assurance. Amen? Jesus gave his life on Calvary for us to have that assurance, for us to have the assured knowledge of eternal life in him. That's how much it meant to him, that he was willing to give his life for us, for us to have the knowledge of eternal life. Look at verse 7 of chapter 27. May the enemies, may my enemies be like the wicked, and he who raises up against me like the unrighteous. For what is the hope of the hypocrite? Though he may gain much, if God takes away his life, will God hear his cry when trouble comes upon him? Will the daylight him, will he delight himself in the Almighty? Will he always call on God? So to fully appreciate what Job's saying here, we have to remember that he's just not talking to himself in that garbage dump. And he's not just praying aloud to God. He's got company, right? His friends are still there. So he's talking to them. He's addressing them. And he's saying that my enemies should be punished like the wicked. And Job considers anyone who denies that he's innocent to be his enemy. So if I was his enemy, I'd cringe over that statement because remember what Job said about the wicked, what should happen to them? They should be eaten by worms. They should die an early death. They should be, when they die, they should be forgotten by their families. And that's just a short list. Everything they own should be cursed. If you're wondering where the grace is here of Job, you have to remember that this is written a long time before the Sermon on the Mount. And we also have to remember that God himself proclaimed Job innocent, didn't he? So we can understand that Job's frustrated over all this because he knows that he's innocent. He knows he hasn't done anything against the Lord. But at least he's seeking the Lord to avenge him, and he's not taking that into his own hands. You know, I found many times in my own life that if I just get out of the way and let God fight for me, the outcome is so much better than what I could ever establish. Look at verse 11. I will teach you about the hand of God. What is with the Almighty I will not conceal. Surely all of you have seen it. Why then do you behave with such complete nonsense? This is the portion of the wicked man with God and the heritage of oppressors received from the Almighty. If his children are multiplied, it is for the sword. And his offspring shall not be satisfied with bread. Those who survive him shall be buried in death, and their widows shall not weep. Though he heaps up silver like dust and piles up clothing like clay, he may pile it up, but the just will wear it. And the innocent will divide the silver. He builds his house like a moth, but a, like a booth which the watchman makes. The rich man will lie down, but not be gathered up. He opens his eyes, and he is no more. Terrors overtake him like a flood. A tempest steals him away in the night. The east wind carries him away, and he is gone. It sweeps him out of his place. It hurls him against, it hurls against him and does not spare. He flees desperately from its power. Men shall clap their hands at him and shall hiss 
him out of his place. So Job's saying, have you ever seen what God can do? Have you seen what God can do to the wicked? Their children will die at the hand of the sword. They'll starve to death. And those who survive that, all of that will die from famine. They'll all die of the plague. What a pleasant thing to say. The widows of the married children won't even mourn them. They'll be forgotten. The wicked will be stripped of their money and their wealth and their possessions. Terror is going to overwhelm them. Tornadoes and storms will just carry them away. That's the fate of the wicked. And so Job gets pretty creative here, doesn't he, in telling people how God deals with the wicked? But we, of course, have seen the righteous and the wicked come to the same ends. God doesn't distinguish between either. These things happen to the good and the bad. And he goes on to say that they'll even try to flee from all of this, but the storm that's been unleashed against them will follow them wherever they go. So basically, Job is poetically saying, don't judge me, bro. Don't judge me. They've been judging him throughout all these chapters, haven't they? They've been accusing him of something he didn't do. They're judging him based on something they have no evidence for. And he's warning them. Be careful of what measure you use to judge me as it will be used to judge you. His friends have already said to him that these things that have happened to the wicked, and they include Job in that category, should happen to you. They falsely accused them of sin, of which they had absolutely no evidence for. You know, Jesus said the exact same thing, didn't he? He said, whatever standard of judgment that you use to judge someone else, be careful, because the same standard of judgment will be used to judge you. Do not judge others, and you will not be judged, for you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. So the way we judge is how we will be judged. How do you want to be judged? Fairly, right? We all want to be judged fairly. If we're judging others without any evidence to judge them, is that being fair? No. You know, there's plenty of examples found in the Bible of people getting the judgment that they wished on somebody else. So I'm going to give you just a couple. Pharaoh, he ordered the death of all the newborn babies, right? All the male babies. How, did, how were they supposed to be killed? The midwives were going to drown them, right? They drowned them. They never did, but that was what he ordered. What happened to Pharaoh and his entire army? They drowned in the Red Sea, didn't they? Haman built gallows to hang Esther's uncle Mordecai on. And as we know the story, Haman and all his family were hung on those very same gallows. Daniel's enemies had him thrown into the lion's den. Now, Daniel escaped without a mark on him, but the families and the enemies that had him put in the lion's den were devoured by those very same lions. And so what that tells us is the wicked do not escape judgment. That in the end, judgment will be from the Lord, and judgment from the Lord is fair and unbiased. And what Job's saying to his friends, and it is a warning also to the people of us, because they've also been accusing him, is that if you continue to judge me without evidence, you will be judged and suffer the same fate that you wished upon me. So that brings up the topic of, do we as Christians judge others? Are we supposed to judge one another? Most Christians will tell you, no, 
Don't judge me, bro. Don't judge me. Paul writes this about judging. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes who will both bring the light to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart. Then each one's praise will come from God, 1 Corinthians 4, 5. But then he writes a chapter later, For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? So when you read those two verses, they kind of contradict one another, don't they? In one verse, he's telling us not to judge before it's time. In in the next verse, he's telling us we can judge those on the inside. And what he's saying is basically there's a time to judge and there's a time to withhold judgment. So in the first verse, Paul's kind of saying do not jump to conclusions. Don't judge too quickly as Job's friends had done. Since we don't know the motives of someone's heart, we can't judge their decisions. We can't judge the circumstances that they find themselves in, can we? We don't know the motives of their heart. We don't know what led them there. We don't know what happened to bring them to that point. You know, a few years ago, there was a series of TV commercials for AmeriQuest. I love these things. you got to look them up every once in a while. Just look at them. They're funny. It's like the trunk monkey. That's another thing I recommend. So you guys will probably remember this once particular one. It was two doctors standing over top of this patient, and the man's out cold, and there's a fly buzzing around their heads, and so they take the defibrillator paddles to kill the fly with. And so this doctor's standing over this man with the defibrillator paddles down. The fly's dead on the bed, and the mother and the daughter walk into the room at the exact moment, and the one doctor says, that killed him. Now you can imagine the look on a mother and a daughter's face. But the other one that I wanted to bring up this morning was this guy is driving in this convertible with this blonde next to him, this long-haired blonde. And the premise is that he's married and the the blonde sitting next to him is not his wife. So his friends see him driving away from behind, and they think right away that he's cheating on his wife, their friend. But as the camera pans around to the front of the car... The guy had just picked up his dog from the groomer and it has real long hair. In both of those examples, they judged without knowing the facts. They judged by appearance only. And that's what Paul's warning against. Don't judge anything or anyone before it's time, before you know the facts, before you have all the information. Now, in the second verse that Paul says we do judge, we judge people on the inside, meaning the church, the body of Christ, our brothers and sisters. So if there's sin in the camp, if there's sin in the body, we're to call it out. We're to deal with it. We're not to just ignore it. Many times the church is so busy judging the sin in the world around us, judging sinners for acting like sinners. How crazy is that? That we miss or we ignore the sin right amongst us, among our own brothers and sisters, the sin in our own camp people doing what they shouldn't be doing, people act, Christians acting the way the world's acting. So in addition to addressing sin, as Paul tells us to call it out and deal with it, and we saw Paul deal with examples of sin many times, especially in Corinth, we're also called to be fruit inspectors, aren't we? Jesus said, you will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Say that three times real fast. 
Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. So we know each other's. We know that we're brothers and sisters in the Lord by the fruit that we produce. So if we see a brother or sister in the Lord who claims to be a brother or sister in the Lord and they're producing no fruit at all, what do we do? Well, first we need to have a conversation with them. And we need to say to them, hey, bro, I don't see any fruit in your life. I know you're a brother or sister in the Lord. I know you're, you're a good brother or sister in the Lord, but I'm not seeing any fruit of your, in your life. We need to point that out. But before we do that, there's a couple of steps we have to take. First step is don't be a hypocrite about it. Jesus said, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove this speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now, we all know that passage of Scripture, don't we? And so many times we've used that passage of Scripture to say, well, Jesus tells us not to judge, but is that what he's saying here? First, Think about this. In order to see this speck in your brother's eye, don't you have to judge that there was a speck there in the first place? That speck represents sin. So there's, a, there's some judgment going on there, isn't there? Jesus didn't say don't judge one another. He didn't say don't call each other out on your sin. He didn't say don't inspect each other's fruit. He said don't be a hypocrite about it when you do. Don't try to pull a speck out of your brother's eye when you're sitting there with this big hunk of wood in your own eye. But notice what Jesus says next. He says, once the plank is removed from your eye, then you can see more clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So Jesus tells us, stop being a hypocrite. And then you can sit down with your brother and say, hey, I'm not seeing the fruit in your life, man. You're not living right before the Lord. But before we do that, we have to make sure that we're living right before the Lord. You know, it's been said that the truth hurts. And it does. It's hard to hear the truth, especially from somebody we love and respect, right? It's hard to hear somebody say, I don't see any fruit in your life. I don't know what's going on with you. Let's, let's sit down. Let's talk about it. It's hard to hear that. It's hard to hear the truth. But you know what? The truth also heals, doesn't it? When you hear that, when that's brought up to you, when, when maybe, listen, maybe you've heard this for the first time. Maybe you don't notice it, or maybe you just are ignoring it. But to hear it from somebody you love, somebody you respect, another brother or sister in the Lord, sometimes that helps us to grow. And isn't that our goal? To grow, to become more like Jesus Christ? And if, if our brother or sister can help us in that goal, isn't that the ultimate thing that we all want? Second, be loving and gracious when you do this. Paul wrote, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you will not be tempted. So remember, love covers what? A multitude of sins, right? So a brother or sister who is in sin may be won over by simply loving on them. Sometimes we're too quick to say, you're in sin, I can't have anything to do with you. And listen, if they refuse to repent, if they refuse to come around, there may come a time when you might have to break ties with them. But before that happens, you simply say, hey, 
You've been a good brother or sister. Let's sit down and talk about this. Why are you going through this? What's wrong in your life? Because I guarantee you there's something else causing this. And to get, help them get at the root of that and help them get past that, you just save the brother or sister in the Lord. But don't have that conversation with them without praying through it first and without praying for them first. And then hopefully, prayerfully, they'll have a teachable spirit. You'll be able to sit down with them and you'll be able to work, work with them to get through this. Amen? Third, have the conversation. Have it. Don't shy away from it. Jesus said, moreover, if your brother sins against you and you go tell him his fault between you and him alone, if he hears you, you have gained your brother. He then goes on to say in Luke's gospel, if pay attention to yourselves, if, if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if re, he repents, forgive him. So have the conversation. Go to them and have the conversation. Ask them to meet you, have a cup of coffee with you. But sit down and have the conversation. Make sure that planks out of your own eye. Make sure before you have a conversation with them about living right before God, that you're living right before God. But have the conversation with them. Have that conversation in love and grace. And whether they receive it or not is not your concern. Having the conversation is. And then fourthly, before we judge anything or anybody, we have learned to judge ourselves, don't we? Paul tells us to judge ourselves so that we will not be judged. He also tells us to make sure we examine ourselves on a regular basis. He writes in 2 Corinthians, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Now it's clear that Apart from having a conversation with brothers and sisters in the Lord, we need to first have a conversation with God about our own self. Asking him to search our hearts. Asking him to reveal anything in us that's hindering us from our relationship with him. To try us. To reveal our troubled thoughts. And what we're asking him to do is to examine our heart and mind to make sure that it's in line with his heart and mind. Because listen, sometimes we just need an adjustment, don't we? So there's a time to judge, there's a time to withhold judgment. And God is going to give us the wisdom to know the difference. And when we do have that conversation with a brother or sister, we need to have it with love. In love and filled with grace. And listen, there's always, there's never a wrong time for us to do some self-examination, for us to, to bring our lives before the Lord and ask Him to reveal anything in us. Let's jump over to chapter 28. Surely there, is a, surely there is a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the earth and copper is smelted from ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches every recess for one in the darkness and the shadow of death. He breaks upon a shaft away He breaks open a shaft away from people and places in places forgotten by feet. They hang far from men, they swing to and fro. As for the earth, from it comes bread, but underneath it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the source of sapphires, and it contains gold dust. That path no bird knows, nor has the falcon's eye seen it. The proud lines have not trodden it, nor has the fierce line passed over it. He puts his hand on the flint and overturns the mountains at its roots. He cuts out channels in the rocks, and his eye sees every precious thing. He dams up the streams from trickling. 
What is hidden, he brings forth to light. So Job demonstrates here some amazing wisdom. Only, the, the only way, place his wisdom could have come from is God. Job says at the core of the earth, there is great heat. And we know that to be true today, don't we? He says that's where gold can be found. It's where the place of the falcon cannot see. It's where animal, no animal is ever tread. And we know today that that's absolutely true. No bird has been able to see the core of the earth. No animal has ever tread there because it's an inhospitable place. The temperatures there range about 10,800 degrees Fahrenheit. That's the temperature of the surface of the sun. We know that there's great deposits of gold and silver and platinum and copper and even tungsten down there. And it's believed that there's enough gold down there to cover the entire surface of the earth in 1.5 and a foot and a half of gold. And the entire earth could be gold encrusted with what lies at the center of it. Anybody interested to a trip to the center of the earth? We, hey, listen, you get any gold you can carry out of there, it's yours to keep. Bring a fire hose. <laughs> Some scientists estimate that there's about 1.6 quadrillion tons of gold at the center of the earth. 1.6, I don't know how they got this figure. That's a lot of gold. And Joe's pointing out that man will mine for gold. They'll mine for silver. They'll spend their whole life looking for riches that are contained in these precious, precious metals. But where do we search for wisdom. In the 1800s, the California experienced what we know now as the what? The gold rush, right? Did you know that in March of 1848, there was a total of 157,000 people living in California? 150,000 of them were Native American Indians. So there was only about 800 non-Native American Indians living in California at that time. By 1850, the number of non-Native Americans had grown to 100,000. Just a few short years after that, it had ballooned up to 300,000. All of those people came there looking for gold, all of them. They were looking to strike it rich, but sadly, many of them never saw even a speck of gold. Many of them never made one dollar from this, from gold fever. They lived looking for that next rock that would make them rich, that next vein, that next pan of dust or dirt out of the streams. They lived for that, that that next pan could be the one that made them rich, but many of them never got rich. In fact, the ones that got the wealthiest were the merchants who set up shops around the towns that sprung up from the gold rush because they inflated the price of everything. For an example, it was written that an egg sold for what would be equivalent to $25 today. An egg. This has been some egg. There was no cholesterol in that egg. They dammed up streams. They panned for gold. They went down into the gold mines and the silver mines. But where do you mine for wisdom? And why is wisdom so important? Well, Job's going to tell us. Look at verse 12. But where can wisdom be found, and where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its value, nor is it found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me, and the sea says, it is not with me. It cannot be purchased for gold, nor can silver be weighed for its price. 
It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire, neither gold nor crystal can equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewelry and fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or quartz, for the price of wisdom is above rubies. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. Job says, tells us where we can't find gold, wisdom rather. He asked the question, where can we find it? But then he first tells us where you're not going to find it. No matter how hard you look, it's not going to be at the bottom of a mine shaft. No matter how hard you look, you can't find it at the bottom of an ocean and even at the core of the earth. It can't be found among the living because true wisdom only cannot come from man. Wisdom can't be purchased. Even if you had enough gold to buy a $25 egg, you can't buy wisdom. Wisdom's more valuable than gold. It's more valuable than silver or crystal or precious gems. So where can you find wisdom? Where can we find understanding? How can we obtain them? Look at verse 20. From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Destruction and death say, we have heard a report about it with our ears. God understands its way and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees under the whole heavens to establish a weight for the wind and apportion the waters by measure. When he made a law for the rain and a path for the thunderbolt and he saw wisdom and declared it, he prepared it. Indeed, he searched it out. And to man he said, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. So Job tells us the only true wisdom is, is hidden from the eyes of humanity. Even the sharp eyes of birds can't see it. Death has heard rumors of where wisdom is, but has never found it. So where is it? Only God knows where wisdom can truly be found. All wisdom and understanding doesn't just come from God. It is God. He is wisdom. What perplexes us doesn't perplex him. What's a mystery to us is not mysterious to him. What confuses us does not confuse God. Think about the words that Job said. God sees everything under heaven. Everything. He determines how much rain or snow should fall and where it should fall. He determines how hard the wind should blow. Lord, if it's okay with you, no snow for PA this year. He lays out the path of the lightning. And as the song states, he fills the heavenly storehouses with snow. He hangs the stars in heaven, and he hangs the earth on nothing, Job tells us. Wisdom is found in God. God is wisdom. He knows the beginning from the end. He is the creator. Makes sense, doesn't it? He created all things. He has wisdom and knowledge of all things. In him lies the answer. In him lies the wisdom to all of man's questions. Wisdom, rightly, Job rightly records and beautifully says, is the fear of the Lord. That is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. And King Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, agrees with that. He says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 1.7. He goes on to say, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding, Proverbs 9, verse 10. So the fear of the Lord is where our relationship should be. And 
that we've departed from evil, understanding the damage that it does to our relationship with God is where we all want to be as well. Fearing God means reverence and all. That's part of the meaning. But it goes much deeper than that. True fear of the Lord is a fear of hurting Him. It's a fear of doing something that displeases Him. That's what keeps us from giving in to our fleshly desires. And the older we get, the more mature we get, the longer we walk this walk, the more we realize that. You know, the difference between a, a truly mature Christian and one who hasn't gotten there yet are the scars. A truly mature Christian just has more scars. The ones who haven't matured that point yet, they're going to get the same amount of scars. But it's those scars that help us realize that our wisdom is in him, that that's the only place we can come to. So what does that look like? How do we tap into, if you will, the wisdom of God? Well, Paul says that we are to walk in it. We're to walk in wisdom. See, then you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Ephesians 5, verses 15 and 17. So first he says, walk circumspectly. Just prior to saying walk in wisdom, Paul says walk in the light. And since Jesus is the light, and he is in the embodiment, the very embodiment of, of the wisdom of God, when we, to walk in the light is to walk in wisdom. Paul tells us to walk circumspectly, meaning carefully, wisely, knowing the times that we live in. How important is it to know the times we live in? It's crucial especially in the day and age we live in. To know what's going on around us, to know what Satan's doing all around us, is crucial that we know the time that we live in, lest we fall in to the same temptations that the world falls into. Paul says next to redeem the time. And it doesn't mean to just make every moment count in your life. It means make every opportunity count that you get to spend time with Jesus Christ, that you get to witness for Jesus Christ, that you get to praise Jesus, to acknowledge him, that you get to live for Jesus. Make every one of those opportunities count. Why? Paul says because the days are evil. How much more evil are they today than they were then? Or maybe they're just as evil. The enemy's hard at work deceiving the, the world, and, and the, we, what they're searching for, what the world needs, is the truth. It's the truth. We have the truth living inside of us. That's what the world needs. So as the enemy deceives the world and the truth lies within us, we have that greater responsibility to reveal the truth to the world. To walk in wisdom is to share the truth that resides in each one of us with the world. Amen? And then fourthly, he says to understand his will. To understand his will is to know his word because... His will for us is found in His Word. Jesus is the Word of God. He is the wisdom of God in the flesh. Paul wrote, But of Him you are in Christ, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So to trust in Jesus, to obey His Word, is to know the wisdom of God. Now you thought there was some shortcut to all this, right? How come it all comes back to reading our Bible? How come every pastor who's, who really is called of the Lord stands up at the pulpit and tells people to read their Bible? Why is that? I don't own any stock in any Bible companies, just so you know. 
If you read your Bible or not, it doesn't hurt me, but it hurts you. And I don't want you to be hurt. I want you to know what's going on. I want you to know his word. To have knowledge is to have understanding. It's to have information about something. And to have wisdom is to have the ability to apply that knowledge that you've obtained to your life. So if you're reading God's word, you're gaining knowledge from his word. The wisdom comes in when you learn how to apply that word to your life. And so it's through the reading and understanding of God's word that we obtain knowledge. And and by meditating on that word, that knowledge that we've obtained through his word brings us wisdom. That's why we take every opportunity we can to rehash what we learn. It's why we meet here after Sunday, after the message today. We're going to meet again, just impromptu, little cordial meeting that goes on here. We call it um, the Rhema Fellowship. And so go out and get a cup of coffee, go out and get something to eat, come back in, and we're going to talk about the message today. But we gain knowledge, we gain understanding, and, and we gain the knowledge of God's will for our lives by being in his word. And the knowledge that we obtain by being in his word brings us wisdom to learn how to apply his word to our lives. Every time in this year, this time of year, we start talking about reading through the Bible. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but how many here have actually read through the Bible from cover to cover? I know a lot of you have. So I challenge you this year, just as my pastor challenged me one year to read through the Bible, and I've been reading through it ever since. Read through it. You'll be amazed at what's in there. This section of the Bible we're in right now, does anybody know what this section's called? The wisdom books. So Proverbs... Psalms, Job, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon or Song of Songs is all considered the wisdom books. As a matter of fact, Psalm 119 is what in the Bible? Anybody know? The longest psalm, the longest book in the Bible. And that's all about gaining wisdom through God's word. So I'm just going to give you two verses out of Psalm 119. You know, I had a brother in the Lord that, re- that actually remembered, actually could quote Psalm 119 to you. He never left the house, but he could quote Psalm 119. Oh, how I love your law. I meditated, I meditate on it all day long. Psalm 119, 97. Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. Psalm 119, verse 105. The book of Proverbs is filled with wisdom. You know, I find it amazing that Proverbs is exactly 31 chapters long. It's a great devotional. If you're looking for a devotional, read through Proverbs every month. In fact, we can find wisdom throughout the entire book. It's all about God. It's all about Jesus. It's written by the Holy Spirit, so it's filled with his wisdom. But the question for us as followers of Jesus Christ shouldn't be where can we find wisdom. We know where the wisdom is. It's right here. He left it for us on the pages of this book. The question is, are we willing to follow that wisdom that's left there for us? Are we willing to walk in that wisdom? Are we willing to apply what we learn in this book to our lives? You know, all the wisdom, the wisdom of the Ancient of Days is contained in this book, but it does us absolutely no good whatsoever if we don't apply it to our lives. It doesn't help us at all. We can cry out, I don't know what to do, I need help. But unless you're in here looking for it, seeking it out, where are you going to find that help? Where are you going to find the answer to that question? Google, reality shows, think about that. Facebook, 
Remember what James said, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives all liberally without reproach and it will be given to him. Ask God. Open his book. Ask him to reveal his all-encompassing wisdom to you. And guess what? He's not just going to sit back and say, hey, that's my book. That's my wisdom. I'm not sharing it with you. He's your father in heaven. You're his children. He wants you to grow. He wants you to have wisdom. He will reveal it to you liberally as much as you need it. So we have no excuse. We can never say, I don't know, because all the wisdom we need is contained right here in this book. And with that knowledge, with that wisdom that we gain from this book brings greater responsibility for us, doesn't it? Maybe that's why we shy away from it. We're responsible for our own actions then. We're responsible then for how we walk this walk. And we're responsible to be a witness to Jesus Christ in all that we say and do. So I don't know about you, but I need his wisdom every day to lead and guide me. Especially when I go to Walmart. So listen, if you can stick around today, we're going to, you can share with what the Lord's shown you through this message this morning. We can share how we're growing through this. We can, maybe there's something you didn't understand or something you want a little clarification on. We can dig deeper into it. So grab a cup of coffee, come back in and, and we'll sit down and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll mull over this. Amen. Please stand. That wasn't too bad. 47 minutes, that's not too bad. Lord, we thank you for your word, Lord. No matter how long or how short, it is always powerful. It always cuts right through the bone, into the marrow, digs deep inside of us, Lord, which is what we want. We want your word to reveal to us what's going on in our lives. We want your word to to just do its work in us, Lord, so that we can be more like you. So, Lord, we know your word does not return void, and I pray today that it, it has spoken to each one here in a certain way, a special way, and that each one will grow through it. Bless us now. Bless this time, Lord, as we, we sit down and share what we've learned. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys.